Good morning. Uh, well, I think I know everybody in the room, but um, I'm Sam. I'm the associate pastor here. Um, and I'm just, I think I'd like to add my welcome to Laura. It's really good to be with all of you this morning in the flesh. Um, like Laura said at the beginning of the service, uh, our church has faced a turbulent week. Our rector, Aubrey Spears, is currently in intensive care at RMH, battling COVID-19. I think it's important to say that Aubrey is not at death's door. He's not even been intubated. And the physicians that I've spoken to seem confident that Aubrey is going to plateau soon. Nevertheless, as soon as we say something like, we're confident that, we think that, um, we immediately realize that we're not living in the realm of certainty. We're at a murky moment. We find ourselves in a position of frustrating unclarity, even about questions as simple and as major as the simple question of life and death. But providentially, we've landed on uh, the very close of Haggai 2. We're finishing out this brief sermon series in the book of Haggai. And we see in our reading from the book of Haggai that when the future is murky, God makes himself clear. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that back in verses 10 to 19, God has reconciled his people to himself. And he's given them a sign of that reconciliation. After years, 16 years of sowing skimpy seed on rocky soil, God has finally given his people a bumper crop. And he's promised, verse 19, from this day on, I will bless you. Right? He's given them this great harvest. The harvest isn't the blessing. The harvest points to the blessing. But he's restored them to this blessing. And yet, God's people remain insecure. Despite returning to Jerusalem, despite rebuilding the temple, despite having this lavish harvest to look forward to, God's people have not really returned from the exile that they suffered at the hands of the Babylonians 66 years earlier. There's still a lurking uncertainty about their future. Now, the prophet Haggai at this point is a wizened old man. He seems to have been among the Jews who were led into captivity by the Babylonians 60-odd years before. And if so, that means that he had probably witnessed the humiliating defeat of the kings of Judah. He would have remembered Jehoiakim king of Judah from 609 to 598 BC, who'd made the mistake of trusting pragmatics and populists rather than prophets. He would have remembered Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim, who'd reigned for a mere three months before the Babylonians crushed Jerusalem in siege and then led him and his sons out into exile where they were almost certainly made eunuchs. 
Jehoiakim was replaced with a pro-Babylonian puppet king called Zedekiah, at which point the kingly line of Judah, the kingly line of the house of David, trails off into oblivion. And this, this destitution of the kingly line of David, this pockmarked the Jews' hope for the future. God had promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne, God says to David, will be established forever. But in the harsh reality of the exile, God appeared to have forgotten this word. In fact, through the prophet Jeremiah, God had denounced Jehoiakim, a king of the line of David. He denounced him. He repudiated him. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. Even if you, and listen to the language because it will sound familiar from our passage. Even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my hand, even if you were this precious ring carrying the weight and authority of everything I possess, still I would put you off. Those words still sting God's people on the day of December 18th, 520, when our reading this morning happens. The house of David is no more. The future is murky. So God needs to make himself clear. You remember last week I set the scene that begins in Haggai chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 10, and then goes all the way through the end of the book. It's three months to the day after the Jews have begun rebuilding the temple. And the location of Haggai's last two prophecies is a public ceremony marking that work. And we saw last week in verses 10 to 19 that Haggai prophesied having a conversation with the priests. He asked them a couple questions about the law, about what's clean and what's unclean. That prophecy, here's how that worked. It looked backward. It looked back to the law of Moses, to the covenant curses and blessings of Deuteronomy chapter 28, centuries before. It looked back to years, decades of God's people's half-hearted obedience to him. Their resistance to pursuing him with all their hearts, souls, minds, and strength. The prophecy to the priests, verses 10 to 19, it looks backwards. But on the same day, on the same occasion, that's what verse 20 tells us. Same day, same occasion, Haggai delivers a second prophecy, not to the priests, but to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Zerubbabel is a ruler of the line of David. Now, unlike the prophecy to the priest, the prophecy to Zerubbabel looks forward into the future. God's people know if the Lord has taken off his signet ring, if he's disowned the house of David, to whom he promised an eternal rule, it doesn't matter what kind of harvest he gives us. We're, we're never going to return from exile. We're never going to be truly reconciled with God. And so right now, we reach the climax of the book of Haggai. 
Haggai has just reassured the Jews of God's faithfulness by looking to the past. Now he reassures them by looking to the future. And the focus of his promise for God's faithfulness in the future is the line of David. Verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel. When the future is murky, God makes himself clear. And he speaks to Zerubbabel three promises which belong to every Christian as well. First, God promises to judge. Verse 21, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And maybe you don't see judgment. Maybe you don't instinctively hear the word judgment and think, ah, that's great news. But in the Bible, judgment is not necessarily a bad thing. The Hebrew word that we translate as judgment can also mean verdict, rules. It can even mean justice. So in fact, judgment is a good thing for those who belong to the Lord. Uh, we named our, our youngest son Alder, as some of you know, um, because of the tree that grows by the water in Psalm 1. Now in Psalm 1, verse 5, we read this. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, mishpat, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. I want you to see that, that parallelism that is coming through in the psalm. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The implication here is, is that unlike the wicked, the righteous are standing in the judgment. Judgment can be very good news indeed to the one who belongs to the Lord. And this is underlined in Haggai, verse 20, Haggai 2 verse 21 by the word shake. Now, so far, we've come across this word earlier in Haggai chapter 2, where God says he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And that's the portion of Haggai that the author of Hebrews quoted in our New Testament reading. Yet once more, I will shake not only the, uh, the earth, but also the heavens, right? Well, here it is again. Now, here's the interesting thing. A friend of mine once said, what's so fascinating about Hebrew is this, it's like, what does it even mean? A single word can do a whole lot of work. Now, this Hebrew word shake, it can mean, it often means two things. When it's applied to people, to conscious, animate things, it can mean that God is showing up and showing his might so powerfully that people tremble with fear. So it means something like God is going to show up and he's going to shake them in the sense that he's going to make the wicked shake in their boots. But when that word is applied to the heavens and the earth or to something inanimate or, or something that's not conscious, then it usually means that God is going to show up and he's going to make creation convulse and crumble. So God makes creation shake in the sense that he's going to make it rumble. And I think both elements are involved here. I think indirectly, we're being told that the nations that oppress God's people will one day 
shake in their boots. That's definitely what's being said earlier in chapter 2. But even more important than what God is going to do to people is what he's going to do to creation, including the acts which people have perpetrated. Because God's burning anger against sin will lead to the shaking of the heavens and the earth. In other words, to the dissolution of the created order. What's the point? The point is that God's burning anger against sin will make the acts that devastate his people come untrue. Not only will the violent be destroyed, but violence itself and all of its consequences will be undone. God promises to judge. Now that might not sound like good news to you, but it sounds like good news to somebody. It's a key aspect of the good news that God gives his people for the future through Haggai. And it leads to a second promise. Not only does God promise to judge, he promises secondly that all of our trials will end. Verse 22, I am about to destroy the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Two two observations about this verse. First, it shows that our trials will end definitively. At various points in the Old Testament, we see God fighting for his people so mightily that God's enemies, Israel's enemies, become confused and they turn against one another and they slaughter one another in confusion. This last phrase, every one by the sword of his brother, it indicates that God is going to bring his people's suffering to a decisive and an utter end. Our suffering will not go on forever. Our trials are not permanent. God is going to bring it to a certain utter end. Now here's the second observation. Not only will God end our trials definitively, he will also himself lead us out of them. Does this language of chariots and riders going down, does that remind you of anything? It's not a rhetorical question. I'm wondering, does does it remind you of anything? Yeah. If you you joined us for morning and evening prayer at all on on Facebook, you, you probably said the song of Moses. You probably read this scripture from Exodus chapter 15, the first verse of which says this, right after the Exodus, I will sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is a promise. Haggai is saying that God is going to lead us out in a new exodus. He's going to take us from bondage to our sufferings. The way that things of our history define us. And he's going to set us free to live as his sons and daughters. He's going to strengthen us with a peace that surpasses all understanding. A strength and a courage beyond earthly explanation so that we can live as his children. And how's he going to do this? Just like he did with the Israelites during the Exodus. He will be with us. Isaiah chapter 43 starts like this. 
But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, the exodus, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, like Aubrey's walking through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Not only will God render judgment, He will take us by the hand, and He will lead us through every trial until that day when He utterly destroys all our suffering. Now, so far, we've seen that when the future is murky, God makes Himself clear. He promises to judge. He promises to bring our trials to an end. And then there's one final thing. Having rendered judgment, having brought all of our trials to an end, the Lord promises, listen, never to let us go. The glorious promise with which the book of Haggai ends is that the Lord will yet give the son of David an eternal kingdom. God's plan for his people, it's not foiled when he hurls them into exile. Not even when he casts off Jehoiakim, even though he was as precious as a signet ring, God's promise to David still stands. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And this great promise has come true. How do we know that? You see the phrase right there at the beginning of verse 23, right? Those three words, on that day. Those three little words show us that we're running into an Old Testament concept known as the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is not so much a a punctiliar point, a specific moment in history. It's more of an eruption of eternity in time. It's the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in human history. And generally in the Old Testament, it's associated with three things. Number one, the day of the Lord. What's the original day of the Lord? Also not a rhetorical question. Audience participation expected. Okay. (laughs) What's the original? Think back. Think way far back. What's the original day of the Lord? I'll give you a hint. Sabbath. On the seventh day, God rested. The original day of the Lord. When in the Old Testament, we look forward to God showing up and and, and judging and reclaiming his people. One of the things that we're told again and again throughout the Old Testament is that he's going to come. God's going to establish that original rest that that human sin and rebellion against him has taken away. And he's going to restore the possibility of eternal rest to God's weary and worn out creatures. All those who labor and are heavy laden, they will rest. 
Secondly, it's a day when God is going to cleanse and renew creation in ways that the Old Testament authors associate with two things, living water and sacrificial blood. That's how God's going to act on the day of the Lord. And then thirdly, it's a day when God says he's going to pour out his wrath on the one on whom the curse rests. Now that day of the Lord, the day when God is also, we learn right here in verse 23, going to take the line of David to be his treasured possession, that day finds its fulfillment, the New Testament authors tell us, in the death and resurrection of the son of David the descendant of Zerubbabel, the true signet ring, Jesus Christ. So this morning, it's really a very simple sermon. If you do not belong to Christ, these promises do not belong to you. But if you do belong to Christ, if you have been united by faith to to great David's greater son, then every one of these promises is for you. Whether God judges for you or against you, whether your trials and your suffering and your pain is redeemed or wasted, whether you're held closely or cast off, the difference, as the Jews understood very well, rests in what you believe concerning the son of David. For of him, the Father says, and we heard this in our gospel reading this morning, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And now listen to David himself. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.